but it's good to have you here, and this is an important topic. In fact, I wish I knew what I'm going to talk to you about before I went to the mission field. My brother-in-law and sister, who at this conference, uh, Phil and Jan Thornton, were missionaries in Columbia. And by the time I got out of medical school and residency, they had finished a couple uh, terms on the field. And I can't remember the advice they gave us except for one thing. I remember my brother-in-law, Phil, looking at me and said, David, the greatest blessing in your life are going to be the other missionaries you work with. And the greatest problems in your life will be the other missionaries you work with. And you can see this picture. I think this is Hudson Taylor and his crew. They don't look very happy, do they? In fact, I was trying to figure out who was having conflict with who and not looking at the other person in that picture. This goes back uh, a lot of ways. And uh, these type of things happen because you're a pressure cooker, especially in healthcare missions. Um, you know, missionary conflict is really amplified in healthcare. Uh, in missions, you don't get to speak, pick your colleagues. The mission picks them for you. They pick your friends, the people you're going to live with, the people you're going to worship with, the people you're going to play with, live in close proximity with. And there is so many things to have conflict over. I remember we used to have uh, meetings, uh, uh, compound meetings, and you had to get permission from all the other missionaries to cut down the tree next to your house. You don't do that in the U.S. It's uh, these type of things that, that make it so very difficult uh, and, uh, to, to live in this high-pressure environment where there's night call, there are patient loads, there's administrative duties, and you're so interdependent on everything. If someone goes on vacation, you have to pick up their duties. It's not like you can wait till they get back. Uh, you're just dealing with this type of thing all the time. And then you have the problems of too much work, limited staff, someone gets mad and leaves. I remember dealing with some discipline problems when I was the CEO at Tenway. I'm walking to this meeting, this person really had a problem in shop, probably back in the U.S., and had problems with everyone. And I'm thinking to myself, if I get her so upset that she leaves, then I'm going to get to do her job. That can kind of blunt your enthusiasm on dealing with conflict. And then you have the whole issue of the lack of pastoral care. Often there's not someone there in that role that's coming into the thing neutrally and looking at it and helping to solve conflicts that are brewing. And I could share you illustrative stories, but I will not to protect the guilty uh, of actual examples of this uh, because uh, they occurred and they occurred regularly. CMDA back in 1960 actually spun off the Christian Legal Society. Our first, their first director was one of our regional directors when we helped start it. And so Peacemaker Ministries is actually one of our grandchildren. They started Peacemaker Ministries and have spun it off. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful organization. And I put their website up there because you're going to hear in much more detail and when I'm going to have time, a lot of principles, curriculum, things they have, video series, uh, other things that could really help uh, deal with a lot of uh, these issues because uh, this is an important one and it's the reason that many missionaries go home because of unresolved uh, conflict. 
And of course, these principles also are helpful in our marriages, in our families, in our church relationships. It goes way beyond healthcare and understanding how to deal with this. Uh, we're going to talk about three phases of this. We're going to spend most of our time on personal conflict because that's the one that uh, we deal with personally, but also how you deal with conflict between other people which is an important thing, and if you're in a leadership position, you're going to have to do that. And then just how do you prevent conflict? These are principles that can help you um, in wherever uh, area of life you are and whatever you're dealing with. Um, let me describe a situation. It's somewhat hypothetical and somewhat personal. Um, I've enhanced it a little bit, but if you have a colleague and uh, someone at the hospital clinic, community health worker, is outgoing and personable, loves people, uh, loves to travel, meeting new people, interacting with nationals. When people come, he's already to take them out to, to the community. Uh, he's on every committee. He loves to preach. He's looking for preaching opportunities. And um, has a little bit of trouble sticking with the grind of the workload. And uh, he's gone a lot. In fact, when he's gone, sometimes he always seems to find a reason why he needs to stay longer than planned. Because something has come up. And, uh... We have a problem? You need to wear this, too. Okay. For recording. Thank you. Um, from this point on, I'm being recorded. I'll be careful what I say. So at first, you know, you just picked up the extra load. You think, well, you know, it's a little irritating. I'm kind of tired of this. But it's, it continues. You get a little more irritated about it. So you complain to your spouse. Uh, and boy, she, in my case, she jumped on it right away, you know. Well, yeah, I'm tired of you working. And he's interfering with our time with the family. And the kids aren't hardly seeing you. You're working all these hours. And the stress starts coming out. And... It, you know, it begins to grow and the irritation starts growing to anger. The embers begin to light up and before long you've got a flame. And finally you get to the point where a few sparks begin to fly to other places and you share your concern by some sarcastic comments to a few of your colleagues about uh, this person's uh, work ethic. And before long, unbeknown to you, that gets back to him. And he starts retaliating and telling visiting staff that you don't care. You're a real workaholic and you don't care about people like he does. And he's really focused on ministry. And you're just, you're just you know, all you care about is medicine. And uh, you learn about that. And so you get ticked off. And uh, your communication becomes shorter, more brusque with this person. And your wives start avoiding each other. And the other missionaries begin to pick sides of this argument. And uh, finally, you begin to think, you know, the best thing maybe we should do is just return to the U.S. And really what you're thinking is, I can punish him. I'll just leave him with all the work. All right? Yeah. Some of you are being real quiet because you've been through this. But whatever your scenario is, this is the type of things that happen in a very high-pressure situation 
where it goes from irritation to anger to bitterness to broken relationships and even the desire to punish someone. And these are devastating. In fact, as you look at what happens on mission compounds and mission outreaches, whatever, one of the most common reasons that people leave is because of interpersonal relationship issues. And they may claim it's something else, but people that are in the know will know what that's going on. We had a, a young couple that we knew and uh, graduated from residency. We sung in the choir with them. I thought, these guys are going to be great missionaries. And they went out and lasted a year. And uh, poor leadership on the compound at the hospital where they were. Uh, the wives got irritated over the kids. One wife was sending her kids over to the others of the house all the time, and she was ending up with a whole bunch. And then she got pregnant unexpectedly, and before you know it, the first thing I heard was I got a call from him, and they were coming home, and I tried to intervene, and it was too late, and they left the field. So where do we begin to deal with this? First, start with your own heart desires. That's that's one of the key issues I'm going to tell you. The Bible talks about it in James 4, 1, 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covenant, but you cannot have what you want. Kill and covenant in your mind. Your quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And that you may um, spend what you get on your own pleasures. And there is so much truth in that statement for all of us, uh, the desires of our heart are the wellspring of conflicts. And it's our a sense of our rights, of what's fair, what's just. Uh, you don't respect my autonomy. You don't care about my family. You don't care about my workload. Whatever the typical thing is, it's because you have uh, stepped on my toes. And therefore, that's where the conflict And uh, the first step that we have to take is to put you, yourself, on the altar. And that's not easy to do. But it's essential before you try to work through the conflict. You've got to put yourself on the altar and give up your own desires. Matthew 5.44 But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And uh, understanding this wellspring of our anger and bitterness is the first step to reconciliation. You have to ask God to deal with you before you deal with other people. If you get that out of order, it's probably going to be a disaster. And the second is to ask God to cleanse your heart of bitterness and anger and give you genuine love for the person you're having the conflict with. Uh, I remember I'd been over in Africa a couple years. Dr. Ernie Sturry, the founder of Tumac Hospital, was my mentor, like a father figure to me. And we had a missionary on the compound that was kind of a lightning rod. And we had some sort of meeting, and he just lit into Dr. Sturry very appropriately. And, I mean, this is the nearest person I ever worked with that practiced like the great physician and acted like him all the time. And so, I, I mean, I was about ready to jump in and just say, hey, you know, what do you think you're doing? I was a little young to do that. And he had every reason to be angry and upset, and he had the power to do something to this person, and he didn't do it. 
And afterwards, I was talking to him about it, and, and I said, you know, why didn't you just, why don't you just deal with this person? Well, he was dealing with him, unbeknownst to me, but I wanted it in a very public way. And he said this to me, and I never forgot it. He said, Dave, I've learned if I genuinely prayed to God for the best for someone like that who's treating me wrong, I, when I'm having a problem, it changes my attitude towards them. I don't pray and ask God to change them. I pray and ask God to change me. And then I go and deal with it. And he said, when this thing happened was not the time to deal with it. I needed to pray first. That was powerful. I've never, ever forgot that. And that's what these verses are saying. To love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. And pray for the best for them. Uh, that's the first step to solving these problems. Paul even experienced this. He said, when they call us names, we say, God bless you. God bless you. I've had to learn doing that in public policy because I do a lot of media and a lot of debates and radio and television. And, and, you know, when I first got into it, my first thought was, I've got to find the best argument possible, stick the knife in, and then I'll twist it. I was on the debates team in high school and, you know, learned how to debate. And so, and God convicted me of that. He said, David, when they put your name up on television or do show on radio, they're always saying, CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. You're representing me. You're representing me. And so that doesn't mean I don't make a good argument, but I do it with the right attitude. And I was debating a... a um, a lawyer from um, Planned Parenthood on national public radio, national coast to coast. And she was nasty. Told me I had no business being in medicine if I wouldn't provide a legal procedure and just all sorts of things throughout the whole thing. And, you know, soft answer turns away wrath. And I made my arguments and I never got angry with her and kept a pleasant tone. And after it was all over, we got a call at the office. I got up from our studio to my office, and the receptionist called me and said, a lady just called. And I said, oh, she want to talk to me? No, she just left you a message. She said she was driving down the turnpike in Pennsylvania, and she heard you with that lady. And she said she didn't know if she agreed with everything you said, but she sure appreciated how nice you treated that lady when she was so nasty to you. I thought, that's a win. I took her from a place where... She thought all Christians were jerks. To, well, maybe, maybe some of them are pretty nice people. This is true in all of our areas of conflict, whether you're doing something like that or you're dealing with personal relationships. Christ summed it up very clearly in Luke 6, 27, 28. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It can't be much clearer in that on what we are supposed to do in that first critical step before you try to resolve the conflict. First John 4, 19, First we were loved, now we loved. He loved us first. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister. And I know what you're saying. No, no, I don't hate them. Yeah, well, sometimes you're just covering up. Thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If we don't love the person we can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people, and you've got to love both. It's not the, just the lovable. 
I have no problem loving the lovable, but it's those that really tick me off that are the problem. And while you thought you were doing just really great because you were tolerating them, it's just kind of like, well, I just won't get around them. They tick me off, so I'll just I'll, I'll tolerate them, stay away from them as much as possible. But God set a much higher standard. And I always have to remember when I'm dealing with these situations, He loved me when I was unlovable. Therefore, I have an obligation to love those who are unlovable, even those that upset me. But not only are we commanded, we're enabled. We're enabled to do it because he's there with us. So that's the first principle. Well, does that mean we just don't judge people? I mean, judge not that you be not judged. Uh, Luke 6.37, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. And so, in a sense, we are not supposed to judge. In a sense, we are to love. That doesn't mean we don't deal with situations. But we don't criticize. We don't talk behind their back. We don't nitpick. We don't gossip. We don't coerce. We, we approach this in a manner that Christ gave us a wonderful outline to on how we deal with this. And um, it's interesting. This verse admits that the person messed up. It says their failures. So they, they did do bad things. It's talking about still we don't pick on them. We don't give us the right to step into God's role as judge, jury, and assistant executioner, at least in our own mind. Uh, does that mean we endure, ignore these actions? No. And what we do is approach it in the right way. The right way is in the wrong way. And the right way is not to have contempt. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly snare off your own face, and you might fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. The whole sense of this is to realize, yes, they may be irritating us. We may not even realize how we're upsetting other people. And maybe we have blind spots. And coming into this with a sense of moral superiority or bitterness uh, doesn't let you deal with the situation. You've got to come with the pure motive of what? Seeking to restore, redeem the situation and come looking at it as looking for the best in that other person and helping them if they've got a blind spot uh, that God is going to help them heal it up. And um, it's very clear this is where we need to be going if you go in it with the right purpose, then you're going to do what you need to do in the right way. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Um, here's the last bit of soul surgery. We need to submit ourselves to our heavenly surgeon and trust to unconditionally forgive the person before you try to resolve it. And the tendency is, well, if they ask me forgiveness, I'll give it to them. That's not what the Bible says. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore them, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out, even before they ask for it. And uh, the, Paul did this. He talks about over Colossians 3.13. He said, be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely 
as the master forgave you. Wow, that's a high bar, isn't it? But God loved us enough. And if you come at these issues uh, with the right attitude, then God helps you do what else needs to be done, and he intervenes in the situation as well. So what's the next step? What's the next step? Well, for one thing, you need to be a duck. you got to know when to be a duck. And there's some things you need to duck those offenses. Uh, I'll give you a silly story, but uh, it's true. I'm, I'm a big Mac lover. I've had an Apple computer since 1985, almost since they came out. And then I've got an IT department that are all, you know, the other guys. So they razz me about my Mac all the time. And, uh, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit under my skin. They go overboard. And so, you know, I got the power. I tease them. But, uh, you know, I have the power to do something about it if I wanted to. I tell them if uh, we all had Macs, we'd only need one of you in that department. But uh, <laughs> I know you don't agree with me. Let's don't start the conflict. But anyway. But there's some offenses that you need to duck. There are some issues that you should avoid dealing with because they don't rise to a level of importance that merits addressing. And Ken Sandy, in the Peacemaker author, uh, talks about some of those. He says there's three things that uh, questions that you need to ask. And if you ask no, answer no to the following questions, then you shouldn't do anything. And the first one is, the, is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? Is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? Has it permanently damaged a relationship? Is it seriously hurting other people? And the third one is, is it seriously hurting the offender himself or herself? So those three questions help you to understand whether this is something that merits conflict resolution because there's irritations all of us have and personality conflicts and just things that people we'd rather be around than not. Uh, and some things you just need to overlook and let Mike water off the duck's back just get off of yours. It's not a serious offense, then back away. And um, somebody, for example, doesn't give you credit for something you've accomplished or has imposed more than their share of work on you someday or said something unkind about you to others. My grandfather had a great uh, expression. He would say this. He said, well, if they're talking about me, at least they're leaving somebody else alone. I've always remembered that. If they're talking about me, I tell my staff, if we do nothing, people will criticize us. And if we do something, people will criticize us. So we might as well do something. Right? There's always distractors. There's always people that don't like what you're doing or don't think they could do it better, whatever. There's some things you should just ignore and get on with life and not make an issue out of it. But and, it. and a lot of these things may not be a habitual pattern, just something happens. So either way, you have to decide whether you're going to get upset, take offense, and make an issue out of it, and you should... Uh, Stay away from things that uh, aren't going to be that big an issue. In the same vein, you need to interpret other people's actions in the best light. When you start getting irritated with people, uh, you begin to put them under a spotlight. And you begin to examine and interpret everything that they do. 
And uh, when this happens, you filter each thing that's said or done, uh, looking for hidden motives or meanings. And uh, you become, uh, you know, uh, acutely aware, almost anaphylactic. Is that the right word? It doesn't take much to set you off in the sense that the smallest imagined offense that you could can cause a huge reaction. Some of us have had this happen in our families. Tell the truth. It's like it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's like, whoa, you know, if that happened with spouses and, you know, it seemed like an inconsequential statement, but that was the last little piece of pollen that uh, caused the reaction and caused a huge reaction. So if you're actively looking for evidence to support your foregone conclusion about this person, uh, that they're in error, then uh, you're going to have this chip on your shoulder, and uh, many conflicts would disappear if persons offended would just take that chip off and, uh, and give the other person the benefit of the doubt. And I've had to intervene with staff. They get into this type of uh, relationship with someone else and sit one or both of them down and talk about it because they just, they're looking for a reason uh, to prove their point that this person isn't worthy of their relationship or their respect. And then there, if there has been serious offense, make sure you're pursuing the right goal, the right goal of restoration. It's easy to take uh, Matthew 18:15 out of context. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And that can be kind of like a pie-in-the-face reaction, you know. Uh, or show him his fault just between the two of you. And I, I've seen people use this as, as their justification to show this other person and uh, the wrong they've done and get into their face and telling them exactly what their problem is. And that rarely, if ever, works. It just makes things worse. So your goal is restoration. It's not to get in someone's face and, and or make them look bad in front of other people or make your point uh, to escalate this thing. The Bible says, let gentleness be evident. Let your gentleness be evident to all Winning your over, brother over does not mean hitting him over the head with a verbal two-by-four. It means acting with gentleness, with mercy, with good intent. You want to be winsome. You want to win them back into a relationship. The goal is not only to renew your relationship, but to make it even better than it was before. And if you go into it with that kind of purpose and you've already forgiven them and you're already working to love them and you're praying for good in their life, you're to the place where you can do that when you start uh, dealing with this. And uh, if you go to the person wanting to prove your point, prove them wrong, there's little chance that restoration is going to take place. And so gentleness as you move into this is so important. Preparation is essential in making peace. Um, often these type of things make us very nervous. If we're trying to go and restore a conflict, depends on who the person we're dealing with. There's some people you're thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to go off on me if I even try this. So I'm going to avoid the conflict. I'm going to move away and I'll, I'll get even in other ways. And uh, so what should you do? First of all, you need to pray for wisdom. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. Lord, I don't know how to deal with this person. That's where I often start. I don't know how I should even approach this. It's such a touchy situation. 
But I'm praying for wisdom. I'm praying for humility. I'm praying for a spirit of grace, unmerited favor towards this person. It is difficult to know exactly what to say and what to communicate. And so, Lord, give me the words. I don't know what I'm doing. And I need you here. It is so key in you having the right attitude and also seeking God's help. Um, Stress and emotions can run high in some of these situations. And you um, you have to deal with them before you get into the situation and trying to resolve it. And then it goes on to say, Romans 8.26, If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of your wordless sighs, our aching groans. I think this is a time when often the Holy Spirit can intervene for us and actually help us in addressing this. We may not even know how to pray. Things are so complicated. Somebody in your family you haven't talked to for years. People that you've ignored. Make sure you don't go by their house. You never visit. It's something that goes way back to some conversation or some incident or something that happened. And there's just a break in a relationship. And you're just thinking just better to leave it that way and avoid it. And God's saying, no, you need to deal with these things. One of the things, uh, you know, I do a lot of teaching on end-of-life care and stuff like that. And one of the questions I often ask with an end-of-life patient as they're drawing to that time, I'll say, is there any unresolved issues within your family or friends that I can help you resolve? And boy, often just a floodgate opens. And I haven't talked to my brother in 20 years. And I said, would you like me to give him a call? Let's see if we can get him to come by. And I'll be happy to be here with you all. And you can get that resolved before you pass on into eternity. Don't you feel like you want to do that and not go with this bitterness in his heart and your heart still going on? These type of things happen. And and being able to to be part of those solutions are some of the most meaningful end-of-life experiences I've had with people and seeing how God can restore relationships not only with himself but with others. And then you may need to find a, a friend or two who will pray with you. Don't forget to pray for me. Pray that I'll know what to say and have the courage to say it at the right time. Uh, and I don't mean get out all the dirty laundry, explain all your motives and all the things that have happened in the past, but just let them know you're dealing with an interpersonal conflict and you need their prayer, that you're not feeling very sure of yourself. Paul said, don't forget to pray for me. Pray that I'll know what to say and have the courage to say it at the right time. Well, that's a great prayer. And if Paul needed it, how much more do I need it? And uh, you read, the, we just got back from Greece. Uh, CMD does a yearly trip to Greece with a wonderful guide. And, and uh, boy, you go to these places and dig into the epistles and all the conflicts Paul It's like every place he was dealing with, it was just a mess. I'm glad I wasn't Paul. He was a bold evangelist, but he seemed to be trying to patch things up and, and give people uh, admonitions and lessons and encouragement all at the same time. And, and uh, he did a very good job at it. Preparation is essential, and I encourage people when I'm counseling about these things is to make a plan. Uh, plan what you're going to say to the person and even rehearse it. I've had people, I've done it. Stand in front of the mirror and 
do my little, I'll try this. That didn't sound right. Let me try something else. And, you know, you're, in some of these really difficult situations, you need to actually plan what you're going to say. And I always admonish people when you're dealing with this, tell people how you feel. Not what they've done to hurt you, but how it's made you feel. People cannot argue with your emotions. They can argue with the facts. They can argue, I didn't mean that. You can argue all sorts of things. But the way to get down to the issue is say, you know, when you did that, I was just crushed. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't have been. Maybe that wasn't your intent, but I was crushed by what you did or what you said. Or how did that affect you? How did that make you feel? And uh, they can argue about all the rest of it, your motives and their motives, everything else, but they can't argue with your emotions, how you feel. And then think about the person's actual response and think about how you will respond. What are they likely to say? How what will I say? And practice helps you think through it and be prepared for it. It may not go like anything like you're planning, but uh, at least you've prepared the best you can. And um, if this turned around, I often think when I'm dealing with these situations, if this was turned around and I was the offender and they were trying reconciliation, what would I want them to say to me? How would I want them to, to, to characterize this? How would I like to be spoken to? And if I think of it from that perspective, putting myself in their shoes, then I do a lot better job when I'm dealing with this. I do this when I'm disciplining staff. I mean, I've got 120 of them, and we have our issues at times. And I have to fire people and all sorts of things. So you, you need to be ready and prepared. Um, in fact, I'll let you on a little secret. I remember the first time I ever fired someone when I was head of a hospital. And it was someone was very underperforming. And uh, I never done this before. And I prayed and prayed and prayed. And we met. And God intervened and gave me the right strategy. I, we got together, asked him to come up to my office. And I won't call him Joel. I said, Joel, I need to ask your forgiveness. That's a good way to start a conversation, isn't it? I hired you for a job that you couldn't do. And that's my fault. That's my fault. I hired you for a job that you couldn't do. And since you can't do it, we're going to try to find a way to separate from the hospital where you can feel successful and good about your job. And, uh, but I just want you to accept my apology because I know this has been stressful for you. And that's all true. I had hired him for a job he couldn't do. And I'll never forget, when the whole thing was over, the conversation was longer than that. When the whole thing was over, he said, thank you, Dr. Stevens. I just fired him. But I did it in a way that I didn't attack him as a person or attack his abilities or his motives or anything else. And I kept a relationship, actually kept in in touch with this guy after he left. And and saw God use him and, and got in an area where he was very competent. So that came because I did all this rehearsal stuff, trying to figure out how to put this in the right words, and uh, it worked well. Tone is so important. I can tell you, I could tell my wife, I love you, honey, or I could say, I love you, or I could say, I love you, or you can make that one sentence mean all sorts of different things, right, by just sounding exasperated or not or sincere or not 
And that all has to do with tone. And that's so important when you're dealing with people. If you sound sarcastic or frivolous or questioning or mean, depending on your tone inflection, it can change the whole conversation. I always try to speak slowly, directly, look them directly in the eye uh, with sincerity and, um, and watch my body language. If I come in like this, what's that mean? I'm protecting myself. Uh, I, don't, I get out from behind my desk for conversations like this. I sit down in chair where we're at the same level, not me behind the big authority thing. And, um, and all those things make a difference as you go about these things, the, the tone, the inflection, and the time and place. Um, time and place is important. Uh, in some reason, some sense, you can go to where they are, and, and uh, in that sense, they're probably more comfortable but the trouble with that is if you're in their home or their office or whatever, you can't control distractions or interruptions as well. Uh, you do have the option of leaving if you're at their place, which is not a bad option to have if things aren't going well. Uh, you can pick neutral ground and say, well, or your office, but your office, that's your power place, and maybe that's what you need in that conversation. But oftentimes I'll try to find neutral ground. Let's go get a cup of coffee. Um, let's talk about, I tell them what I'm going to talk about, let's get together, I want to discuss this with you, I want to put them at ease, and, uh, but I still want to keep control of how long the discussion is going to last and, and those type of things. But um, you want to pick the best spot to have these conversations. Interruptions are the worst thing. You, know, you don't want the kids running in, you don't want somebody else running in when you're having this type of discussion. Um, so you don't want the ground to be too threatening. You want it to be neutral. And, um, and you've dealt with your personal feelings before God. You're prayed up. You're rehearsed. You've practiced. You've found the right place. And you've approached it biblically. But you still can be very worried and fret about what's going to happen. You can be nervous, scared. What about written communication? Don't try to solve conflict with written communication, Period. It almost never works. Now, there's rare situations where that's the only option, uh, but it doesn't have any tone. It doesn't have any inflection. It doesn't have body language. It can be passed on. It can be misinterpreted. It can cause, come back at you. I dealt with some major conflicts in our organization right after I came on at CMDA and said something in writing. They took it out of context and passed it on to other people. And, it, yeah, it was a mess. And um, so... I strongly advise against it. Uh, you can't tailor to how they're responding. You can't give explanations as they come back with questions. You need to do these things in person. Um, never use a letter or email to deal with conflict. Uh, they're just too impersonal unless you're just in a corner and that's the only way to deal with this, uh, personal meetings. So you get there. You've done all these things. Now you need to relax. Remember this picture, right? That's laid back, man. I'm on a lily pad, enjoying life. Um, you got to rest in this. You know this is what God wants you to do. You're not doing this because you love to resolve conflict. You're doing this because this is what God told you to do. You're trying to strive to please Him. God expects faithful obedience and rewards it, but He doesn't promise us success. You can follow every one of these principles and the whole thing can still go to pot. Now, I think there's less chance that it will, but rest in the fact that the outcome is in his hands. 
this isn't on your performance. You're finding the right words. You've done everything you can personally. You can't control the other person's reactions. Only God can change people. Don't you wish you could change people? I mean, I've got some people I'd love to change. But that's not the way it works. And rest in the assurance that you aren't dealing with this alone, but that God is with you. He commanded us to do it. The Scripture's there. This is the loving thing to do, to make an effort. And, um, and you've done the best you can. And just rest in that and uh, relax. I always, uh, my wife teases me about this, but I always tell her when things come up and tell myself when things come up, think of the worst thing that can happen before it happens and accept it. Accept it. I remember when I was doing relief work with Samaritan's Person, we were talking about, as I went off into a war zone, the only place I've done missionary work with 10 guys with machine guns guarding us all the time. And it was really scary place. Got shot at. I mean, all sorts of things happen there. And Jody and I are having these pretty serious conversations before I leave the States about whether I'm going to come back or not. Remember, she said, why don't I come? I know how to cook in Africa. I said, honey, if we both get killed, then who's going to have the kids? I mean, you know, I don't really have those kind of conversations. And and But I was saying, I've accepted the worst that I could not come back. And you need to accept that as well. If that's God's will, then we need to accept it now. And not go in fear, but go in confidence that God's still in control. And that's true in these situations as well. Um, when I get in debates and do media and all this kind of stuff, I always say, it's in your hands, Lord. And whatever happens is going to happen. I've done my preparation. When you get there, listen. It's a lot better to listen than do a lot of talking. And you want to hear what the other person has had to say. Answering before listening is both stupid and rude. I love that verse. Proverbs 18.13. You may want to memorize that, okay? We have all these other verses we memorize. That's probably not one that's on your list. Speak wisely. Watch the way you talk. Say only what helps each word a gift. Wow. That incorporates in one word what you're trying to do. You're trying to restore. This is a gift. And, uh, and you're trying to restore a relationship, not only for your sake, but for their sake as well. Get and give feedback. A general response diffuses anger, but a sharp tongue kingles a temper fire. You've got to remember that your tone, your words, and everything can make it worse or make it better. And uh, doing it with a gentle response and kindness and, and compassion uh, makes it go well. And then may take more than one conversation. Sometimes it's not resolved. Um, and you, see, you may get to a point and it just seems like you're not getting any further and say, listen, can we get together and talk about this again? I want to pray about it. I know you want to pray about it. Let's, let's get together again at such and such a time. Let's have another cup of coffee. Let's have lunch. Let's talk some more about this. And um, God's servant must not be argumentative, but a general listener and a teacher who keeps cool, working firmly but patiently with those who refuse to obey. You never know how or when God might sober them up with a change of heart and a turning to the truth. And so it may be a process. It may take time. Even when you do uh, everything right, uh, it may not all over be over. And, um, and then you may get to the point where you need mediation. Somebody to come along. If he won't, if he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witness will keep things honest and try again. Uh, witnesses, people there can help 
hold you both accountable, see beyond the rhetoric to the facts, pray for you both, and and really uh, be the bridge if it's a very serious situation. We had a situation in my early days at CMDA with another Christian organization, and we couldn't get a resolve and brought in Christian mediation and got somebody else in the room. Uh, all our efforts were in vain until that happened, and we finally got the situation resolved. So there's things that rise to that level where you want to have the mediation. And then forgiveness is the best form of love. It takes a strong person to say sorry and an ever stronger person to forgive. You still may have some things to ask them to forgive you for. Wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes. Uh, it says over in Luke 17, 13, uh, be alert. If you see friend going wrong, correct him. If he responds, forgive him. And there may be things that you need to, to do. Be gentle with one another, sensitive, forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. So there's lots of verses that talks about our obligation for forgiveness, but you may need to ask it for wrong words, things that were misinterpreted, uh, attitudes, thoughts, and actions. And when you ask for forgiveness, never use the word what? But. Please forgive me, but. That's not asking for forgiveness. That's just going back to try to justify yourself again. You've got to be willing to sincerely say, and most conflicts have two sides to the story. Most of them do. And uh, you may not have intent to cause harm, but you may have harmed someone, and you'll realize that during discussion. Make a conscious decision to be different in the future. Uh, Joe Baxley talks about this, and he says, uh, it's a great verse, if I can get it up here. Um, he says, I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crust of hearsay and crumbs of rumors. I love it in the message over in Job 42, 5 and 6. Just a great verse. And we deal that. You know, we, we assume things of people and things have escalated and so-and-so said such-and-such to so-and-so who said it to so-and-so who said it to me. And by then it's like the game of telephone. Resolving conflict is hard work, but there is a way to approach it in a biblical manner. You may want to seek advice from wise people um, as you get into this um, and then go to it in a very biblical perspective. And then I encourage you, as you look at conflict prevention, they're having a little conflict there. Um, I'm the president of Asbury University. I'm on the board. my alma mater. She was going to South Africa on a safari, and they were driving their own vehicle through the park. And I said, let me explain something to you. When the elephant's ears come out and the trunk starts waving, it's time to back up. (laughs) And she got there and it happened. She came back and said, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. We backed up and he was just about to charge. So uh, that's why the elephant picture. Uh, I think one of the things we can do, many of some of you are in executive positions, leadership positions, is proactively take people through courses on conflict resolution before the conflict happens. We do need to do a lot more of this, and we do new missionary orientation. I take them through this training. We give them a book. We say, read this again when you know you're going to need it, when you get to the field, and take people there through this. Uh, These principles are transferable, and there's great uh, resources for small group studies. I know our church did one with peacemaker material 
and had you know had discussions and did a six week course on it during Sunday school, and it was so helpful in the church and prevented so many problems from happening. And there's the book. Any questions, comments, confessions? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the keys for that is giving people permission as a leader to come in and say what's on their mind. And that's a matter of trust. I mean, people are afraid to say to the person who has the power to fire them um, to, to speak the truth even in love. Um, there's some people you wouldn't want to speak the truth to on any manner, uh, and I realize that. Um, but in a, a Christian leadership, I think people need to have their permission to correct you. I think you need to have an accountability partner who's willing to correct you, uh, someone in your organization or outside your organization, but better, who can speak the truth to you in love and then give people permission to do that. And it's a matter of trust and it takes time. Um, but I... I'm not perfect at that, but I'm really working on it with my staff. If I've said something to harm you, I want to know. If I've said something that has hurt you, I want to know. Um, if if you've got questions about my veracity, I want to know. Let's keep short accounts. I will do the same with you. We're in this together. We're ministry partners. If people understand that though you have different positions of leadership, but they understand you see yourself equal before God, then there's a freedom to do this. Now, that's not true in some organizations, but it's the leadership leader's responsibility to create that atmosphere. And if you don't have the atmosphere, it's very difficult to do this, and you do it at your own risk. And I've done that. I, con- I confronted a leader with a group of staff or something, and it didn't go well. Some people got fired afterwards, not me, but I led the charge. I don't know why I didn't get fired, too. So it, you know, there, it was in a Christian situation. And a person just, okay, you guys don't like what I'm doing, I'll just get rid of you. So uh, that happens, and there's always a risk involved. So there's no magic formula from the bottom up, but I think there is a, a formula biblically based from the top down. I'm no better. I may have higher responsibilities. I may have a higher pay level, but we're all equal before God's throne. And, um, and I want... I want to be humble enough for anyone to give me correction. That's no credit to me. I've learned that the hard way. Other questions or comments? It's a good one, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, we've dealt with that in my organization. In fact, my senior staff, I try to avoid not having them in the office with us because there's just filters that people put stuff through and can assume wrong motives. And if they are there, they wouldn't be. So if I have a senior staff, someone who's going to work in a distant position, I want them in an office for a while so a level of trust is built. Uh, the other way to handle it is, is uh, frequent supervision and discussions. Uh, visits to their site, um, you know, not doing it all by email, which has no tone and causes problems. 
Uh, I meet with every senior staff that I supervise every week, either by phone or in person, unless I'm on the road and can't do it. But if I'm in the office, they have set times and we're discussing things every week. So keeping short accounts and um, trying to explain things as best as possible and really encouraging them to ask questions and let you know if they don't understand or have concerns and give them permission to do that. If not, it happens, and I've seen it happen. It's happened in our organization where somebody gets a chip on their shoulder and everything's interpreted the wrong way. It can be from me to them or them to me. I mean, it it's, can be very difficult when you're not looking each other eye in the eye. I'm doing more FaceTime and stuff like that with people where I can see inflection and body language and all the rest of it because they can be saying one word and thinking something else. That's best I know. But, yeah, especially when you're dealing with folks halfway around the world. Yes? Could you address the healing process for someone who has been? Yeah, addressing the healing process. You know, things that are torn down over time don't rebuild in a day. Uh, These conflict resolutions is the beginning of a process. And there has to be a restoration of trust. When I'm trying to do this, I try to spend more time with them. I mean, it's not just a conversation, this is all done and walk out the door. It's a matter of, of showing that you want to be with them, you want to have that friendship, you want to have a relationship. Can you come over to my house for dinner? Let's go out for a cup of coffee. Let's go play basketball together. Something where we are now back together doing things. And, um, and that's hard to do, especially busy. But if you're going to really restore a relationship, you have to restore it and take it to a place of where it's going to stay. If not, some other little thing's going to happen and the whole thing's going to break open again because there's still that chip on a shoulder that hadn't been removed. It takes time and healing. And, um, and the deeper the offense, often the longer the healing. I had a, a, a worked with somebody and, and thought they had really treated a lot of people bad. It was a leader. And it took me a number of years to get over it. I mean, I could handle myself, but I was so ticked at what they did to other people, and it took me a while to get forgiveness in my heart. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Is there a place for a gift in secret to break the ice? Um, I don't know if in secret would help, but I think anything you can do to extend an olive branch, you know, inviting somebody over to your house for dinner or to go do something, let's go to the ball game together, I bought some tickets, something to, to, to get you together to discuss these things. Maybe not even discuss them, but just build some relationship before you do, some bridges I think can be helpful. Uh, a gift might be something nice as well. I don't know if it's secret that how they would know, it help me maybe to do it. But I don't know if it would help them because they wouldn't know where it came from. But, yeah. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to be doormats. That's not what God's calling us to be. But pride doesn't mean, lack of pride doesn't mean you're a doormat. And, um, Thank you all. Go and restore some relationships. God bless you. Oh, sorry. One more. Open to accountability. That's a longer discussion. Uh, <laughs> come up and we'll talk about it. God bless.